Well, again, I do thank Isaiah for leading the singing for us uh, tonight, and it really did help uh, the singing. We're going to bow together in a brief word of prayer before we turn to the Word of God. Father in heaven, bless us. Fill me with thy spirit. Speak, Lord, to every single one of us. May we learn from thy truth. May we profit from it. May the power of God rest upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two texts this evening from two different books. Uh, One is from Hebrews chapter 11, and it's the verse 31. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and verse 31. Uh, And then just a few pages further on in the Bible, James chapter 2 and verse 25. In Hebrews 11 and verse 31, we read, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And then in James chapter 2 and verse 25, we read, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. So you see, as a common theme here, we're dealing with Rahab, and she has that title attached to her, Rahab the harlot. I was thinking that 50, 51 years ago, I was asked to preach in our church in Castle Dirks before I started to study for the ministry, and I determined one of my messages, I can't remember if I had two messages to preach or one, one of my messages would be on the conversion of Rahab. And I worked out a plan of the message in my mind, and I thought about it, how I would deal with it. And then I consulted the only commentary on the whole Bible that I had, Matthew Henry's commentary. Didn't even have the full version of it. I had the abridged edition. I must say it's a very good abridgment uh, of Matthew Henry's commentary, especially uh, in the Old Testament. And when I read Matthew Henry's comments, I realized that my approach was completely wrong. I was going to preach on Rahab getting saved when the spies came, and Matthew Henry pointed out that Rahab was already converted. And he was right, because it says by faith Rahab received the spies. So she was already a converted woman when the spies came to the city of Jericho. Now, I did say this morning I would throw in a little teaser at the end, Uh, And it's just a question, why, long after she was saved, long after she had entered heaven, is she still referred to in the Word of God in the last two references to her as Rahab the harlot? It almost seems demeaning uh, to this great woman, a woman who was transformed by the grace of God. But we leave that to the one side and Uh, We're going to think about the triumph of grace uh, in this woman's life. A fallen woman, and the grace of God triumphed in her life. And the first thing that I want to think about with you is what led to Rahab's conversion. And clearly what led to it was what she had heard. And if I may just pause in a sense there, it shows the importance of what you hear. It shows you the importance of of getting the truth out there 
so that men and women who are unsaved might hear what is right. They might hear the word of God. They might hear about Christ and the way of salvation. Well, this woman, she had heard different things. She says to the spies when they came into our home, she says, I know that the Lord hath given you uh, the land. And she says in verse 10, we have heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And we have heard what you did to the two kings on the eastern side of the Jordan, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. So it's interesting because uh, these two events, we might say they bookend the 40 years of sojourning of the Israelites in the wilderness. Red Sea was first, and Rahab says, we heard what happened. We heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea, how the Israelites were all brought safely through it. We heard what happened to Pharaoh and his hosts. And then, 40 years later, we heard what you did to Sion and Og. So she's, she's speaking of events 40 years apart. And we may assume that she heard also of other events that took place in between times. There was the defeat of the Amalekites. There was defeat of the Midianites. She may even have heard of the prophecies of Balaam and uh, how he would have be happy to curse the Israelites and was not allowed to. And she may have certainly heard of how God miraculously gave food to the Israelites. Remember, I think I've said this before, there were no supermarkets. There wasn't even a corner store. And every day, every day, with the exception of the Sabbath, food came, it came from heaven to supply the needs of the Israelites. And strangely, no food came on the Sabbath, but a double supply came on the day before the Sabbath. How miraculous, how amazing. And I'm sure Rahab had heard about that. She probably heard about the water coming out of the rock. And then there's something else told us about the Israelites. Their clothes didn't get old. You wear your clothes for a number of years and you have to have a change of outfit. Uh, and I suppose the ladies have many more changes of outfit than the men. Uh, but eventually... Uh, we have to get a change of clothes. You can't wear suits that you wore 40 years ago. Otherwise, people think you're antiquated and that you're not up to date with the fashion. And well, their clothes never waxed old. Their shoes didn't wear out and their feet didn't swell. I'm not sure if she got all those details, but she got many details of what God was doing for the children of Israel. And here's the important thing about Rahab. She thought about it. She was a thinking woman. We heard, and then she comes to a conclusion. Your God is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Sometimes we are accused of being unthinking people, that we're something of simpletons, that we have this blind faith uh, and it's all wishful thinking, and it isn't real. That's not true. God's people think. God's people think things through. 
and by the blessing of God upon them and by the working of the Spirit of God upon their minds and hearts, they think it through and they see it. They see that the Word of God is right. They see that it is inspired. They see wonderful things in the Word of God. They see the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament. They see that Christ is the very one who was spoken of. They see that it was stated that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again, that he would triumph over the grave, and that he would pay the price for his people's sins. And they think it through, and they come to the conclusion, as the Word of God exhorts them to, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And they can say with Peter, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And I say to you again, it is so important to get the truth out. And where does the truth center? Well, Christ said, I am the truth. Get people to know about Christ, his greatness, his glory, his love, his mercy, his power to save. But then something else, I believe, played a part in Rahab's conversion. And I'm going to surprise you here. I say this to you. Her own wickedness played a part in her conversion. Now, here I'm going to go on a little diversion, not a digression, and I will bring it all back together. In the book of Leviticus, and chapter 13, there is a large chapter that deals with the subject of leprosy. Now, leprosy was a terrible disease. Cancer, perhaps, is the great disease today. Leprosy was the dreaded disease amongst the children of Israel and probably, no doubt, amongst other nations. And it began in a very small way. Uh, the person who had leprosy at first didn't realize, then spotted something, maybe a rising, uh, a swelling uh, on their skin, uh, or it could be a scab that had appeared, or a bright spot. Uh, and that person immediately seeing that would have dreaded the worst. Have I got leprosy? And they had to go along to the priest. And the priest was qualified to pronounce whether the person had leprosy or not. Sometimes he wasn't sure and the person had to go into isolation for a week. And then when that person was brought out again, the priest would take another look. And in some circumstances, he would say, that wasn't leprosy, you're clear. But sadly, in other circumstances, he would say, you have the leprosy and uh, you have to depart uh, from the city or town uh, or uh, before they had cities and towns, you have to depart away from the encampment of Israel and they had to isolate themselves in what we might call a leper colony uh, separated uh, from the mainstream of the population. Uh, they had to put a covering on their upper lip. Uh, their clothes were rent. Uh, and uh, uh, when somebody approached them, they had to cry out in warning, unclean, unclean. What a dreadful thing it was to have the disease of leprosy. And someone has said that the leper was a walking sepulcher. It worked that leprosy on the outside, the tips of your fingers or tips of your toes or your ears or your nose, would begin to rot away. And then on the inside, that disease was working more and more. 
how dreadful it was to be a leper in those days. But there's a very strange rule in Leviticus 13 and verse 13. Let me read it to you. Uh, We are told, uh, well, I better go back to verse 12. If a leprosy break out abroad in the skin, and the leprosy cover all the skin of him that hath the plague, from his head even to his foot, wheresoever the priest looketh, then the priest shall consider, and behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. It is all turned white. He is clean. That would strike you as very odd. How come that you've only a few spots uh, and they're spreading a little bit that the priest will say, you have leprosy, go outside the camp. But if you're covered in leprosy, then the priest will pronounce you clean. Matthew Henry says, if the eruption covered all the skin from head to foot, it was an evidence that the vitals were sound and strong, and nature hereby helped itself, throwing out what was burdensome and pernicious. Really, he's saying, the very fact that the person's covered and still alive is an indication that on the inside, that person is healthy, and soon, of course, all the signs of leprosy would disappear and the person uh, wouldn't be infectious uh, and wouldn't be a danger to other people. John Gill has something similar to say and he then interprets the spiritual meaning. What is the application? What is God saying? Well, he says the spiritual meaning is that when a man sees himself to be a sinful creature all over covered with sin and no part free, and disclaims all righteousness of his own to justify him before God, but wholly trusts to and depends upon the grace of God for salvation and the righteousness of Christ for his acceptance with God, he becomes clean through the grace of God and the blood and righteousness of Christ. See, what the spiritual meaning is this. Uh, If you think you're only partly uh, diseased by sin, you think, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm quite good. Yes, I do wrong you don't realize just how corrupt your heart is. You don't realize what Jeremiah says, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? No, you think I'm, if you're a man, quite a good fellow. If you're a lady, uh, well, I'm quite a good lady. Uh, I'm not bad enough to be condemned. I'm not bad enough to be sent to hell. That's how Paul thought of himself. He details his righteousness in Philippians chapter 3, and then he met Christ. And he says, What things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yes, I had it all piled up, it was all gain, it was all profit. And then suddenly, I saw myself as I really am. I saw my heart, I saw my sin. And instead of having gain, I was a bankrupt spiritually. I was... Uh, not just in the, in, in the debit column. I was ruined, ruined. And he says, I count these things but dung, stinking, horrible, my own righteousness, it's nothing. He realized that like the leper covered with sin, or covered, sorry, with leprosy, he himself was covered with sin. And now I said I would come back to Rahab and Think about Rahab. 
She's there in the city that is doomed. She's heard about what God is doing for the children of Israel, and she thinks God is true. She even uses the name Jehovah, the great name of God in the Old Testament. She says, your God, he is God in heaven above. And she's speaking about the Lord. And then I've said she thinks. And she thinks, well, I have been a disgrace. I've sinned more than the vast majority. Perhaps she thinks, I've sinned more than anyone in the city of Jericho. I have defiled my body. I have defiled the bodies of others. I brought disgrace upon my family, upon society. And if anybody in the city of Jericho is going to die, to be judged, to go to hell, then I am that person. So that's why I say her wickedness played a part in her conversion. She heard the truth, she looked at her own life, and she said, I'm like that leper. Well, maybe she didn't use that language, but that's the way she saw herself. The leper covered with leprosy. Well, I'm covered with sin. And that led her to repentance. She said in Joshua 2 and 9, all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. The people have no heart left in them. She said their their hearts had melted uh, in verse 11. And they... These are the strong men, the warriors. They have no strength left. They think of themselves uh, and uh, they say, because God has been uh, leading his people, giving his people triumph over the enemy, surely we will fall and this city will be destroyed. Rahab's heart melts. She feels ruined before God and she turns from her sin. And she calls upon Jehovah to save her from her sins. And we know that because by the time the spies came, she had faith. She was trusting in the Lord. But the second thing I want you to think about is the great change that took place in Rahab's life. And it was an enormous change. There's a hint of it in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 2. And A.W. Pink picks up on that. It says she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them, and notice these words, with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. Now that word flax, it links very neatly with some statements in Proverbs chapter 31. In the verse 10 of that chapter, Solomon asks the question, who shall find a virtuous woman for her price? is far above rubies. And in verse 13, he makes a statement concerning the virtuous woman. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. And here is Rahab. What's she doing? She has been working with the flax. She has been out in the fields. She's gathered the flax. She's laid it in order upon the rooftop to get everything sorted out and to produce some material from it. She's no longer relying upon her immoral trade, uh, that disgusting 
afraid of prostitution. She's no longer behaving in that way. She's not corrupting the men of Jericho. She's no longer disgracing her family, even though there would still be a feeling of disgrace about her past behavior. Now she's behaving as an honorable, honest, and upright woman. A great change has taken place in her life. And then there's a further evidence. When the spies came and she knew and confessed before them that the city was ruined, that it was given into the hands of the children of Israel, she pleads. She pleads with the spies. And she says, I want you to do something for me. She says, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father, my mother, my brethren, that's my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. She says, I want you to do something for me. I want you to promise, to promise before God. I want you to promise that you'll save my father, that you'll save his life, that you'll save my mother, my brothers. I want you to promise to save them and my sisters. And some of them are married and some of them have children. I want you to save their lives. This is the woman who didn't care what her family thought before, who had no love for her family. Now as a child of God, the great burden she has is please, please don't let my family perish. Don't let my father and mother and all my loved ones perish and be destroyed. They gave her a promise. They said, look, there's this condition. You get them all into your house and your house will be preserved. And if you get them all in, uh, then our life uh, will be for theirs uh, if any of them perish. Uh, But if they are not in your house, uh, then we are not answerable for what will happen to them. And that woman, that woman not only pleaded for her family, she pleaded with her family. She went out and she spoke to her parents. She spoke to her brothers and sisters and to their loved ones, uh, husbands, wives, children. She spoke to them, no doubt with many tears, with a great longing in her heart. It would have been difficult at first. They would have said, Rahab, Rahab, you're the one that has behaved in this wretched, wicked fashion. And you're speaking to us now. Uh, And that does happen. Someone who has lived what we might call a notorious life, they get saved. And people who were happy to watch them in their sin and to encourage them in their sin, immediately they point the finger and he thinks he's saved. He used to be with us in the pub. Now he's lecturing to us. Now he won't come near the pub. He was quite a jolly fellow before he got saved. Now he's only interested in prayer meetings and Bible studies and singing the praises of God. Yes, there's a hostile reaction and you get saved. And Rahab had to live down whatever hostile reaction there was to persuade them and to plead with them and in a sense to cajole them into getting into her home. And she crammed that home, I'm sure she did, to get all of the family into the home. 
And it's always a good sign that you love the Lord when you want to see your family saved. And then when that love grows and you want to see other people saved, you want to see your neighbors transformed, you want to see people in the church that sit with you who are not saved brought to Christ. And you reach out, left, right and centre, we might say, with the gospel of the Saviour. But then she did something more. She risked her life to stand with the people of God. If the king of Jericho and his cohorts had known what she had been doing and how she was sheltering those spies, she would have died. Immediately, they would have put her to death. She risked her life to shelter the spies. She risked her life to save their lives. Uh, And in the eyes of her people, and it would have hurt, in the eyes of her people, she would have been considered a traitor. But she knew the God of Israel is the true God. The God of Israel has saved my soul and my loyalty is to the God of heaven and my loyalty is to his people. It can be very difficult uh, when you have to turn your back on those that, that you cared for and loved. Uh, I read a book, uh, I suppose a few years ago, uh, and it's called Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. A lady in America, uh, she was a lesbian, very militant, a lecturer at university, and uh, the Lord dealt with her. She received a letter from a minister, threw it in the bin, and then took it out again, read it, and threw it in the bin again. And then she made an appointment to go and see that man, and he invited her to have a meal with himself and his wife. She thought she was going to get a real lecture from him, but he treated her very gently. And little by little, she came to the conclusion that she was lost and guilty and hell-deserving, and she repented of her sin. And she said that when she got saved, it was almost like a train wreck in her life. She was turning her back on all her erstwhile friends. Yes, she still cared for them, but to them, she was a traitor, deserting the cause that she had so militantly advocated. Yes, it's hard when you turn your back on your friends or when you take a stand and they turn their back on you. And the same thing happened with Ruth. Uh, Ruth decided uh, that she would go all the way to Bethlehem. And she saw that uh, in Bethlehem, uh, she uh, would be with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And uh, when she came uh, to the parting of the ways, or what could have been the parting of the ways, her mother-in-law said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return thou off to thy sister-in-law. And what did she say? Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Turning her back on the idolatry of Moab in order to follow the people of God. Now there's something of a little jarring note that I'll throw in here. And that is, she wasn't perfect. She wasn't perfect. Even though she was saved and she was changed, she told lies. She said, 
The men are gone from my house. If you follow them, you'll overtake them. Uh, you have plenty of time to catch up with them, really. Uh, and, and they followed her advice, deceived by her. Uh, I know that there's, there's a problem that some people have about this matter. And the question is, is it right to deceive an enemy, to tell lies to an enemy in time of war? Is it right or is it wrong? Some people will say, even Christians, that in those extreme circumstances that uh, it is allowable. I don't agree with that. Uh, but um, what would you and I do in the same situation under the same pressure? It would be very difficult, I, I can say. But one thing I'll say to you about this, don't let that be the focus of your thoughts or your conversation after this meeting. I, I didn't uh, come here just to have you discuss uh, whether she was right or wrong to deceive the people of Jericho. I came to focus on how the Lord transformed her life and changed her completely. And there's one more point and that is this. I want you to see how God richly rewarded the faith of Rahab. Well, we see that he saved her by faith. By faith, she received the spies. She was justified uh, according to James chapter 2. And her conduct showed uh, in the way she received the spies and in her honest behavior, her conduct showed that her faith was real by works. That's her conduct after salvation. Not, not the procuring cause of her salvation, but the evidence that she's a changed woman. And then I'll tell you something that I really enjoy. Hebrews 11 and 31 devotes a whole verse to Rahab. The next verse, chap verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11 what does it speak about? Well, uh, the, uh, the writer of uh, uh, Hebrews 11 says, What shall I say more? For the time would fail me. He says, I haven't time to talk really about Gideon uh, and Barak and so on. Uh, and he says, uh, Jeff, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and of the prophets. Here were mighty people. Samuel, the great prophet. David, the great king. Gideon, uh, brave Gideon, had 300 men. The Midianites had a host. But Gideon had the Lord with him, as the children's courses, and so he had the most. Gideon, all of these people, and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the minor prophets, he, he lumps them all together, their faith, all together in one verse. But he devotes a whole verse. One whole verse to Rahab. That's how treasured she is in the sight of God. But then furthermore, she married Salmon, a prince of Judah. His father was Nashon, uh, and Nashon was one of the leaders. In fact, he was a leading man in the tribe of Judah at the time of the numbering of the tribes in Numbers chapter 1. So he's the son of a prince in the land, and he marries Rahab. He considered her to be suitable for marriage. There he is, a mighty man, and he chooses her as his bride. What a transformation 
has taken place in Rahab's life, and then something more. And I like this. She was the mother of Boaz, according to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. The mother of Boaz, that great man, that mighty man of wealth, but also that mighty man of faith in God. She must have done some work training that boy. Here is my son Boaz. I train him for God. And he serves God and becomes great in the eyes of God and great in the eyes of men. She was doing a very great work. She was an ancestress of David. She was his great, great grandmother. I hope I haven't left her great out. And some think there might be even one or two links in the chain that are not included in the Bible. So she might have been great, 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 great grandmother of David and an ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now my little teaser at the end. This great woman, this wonderfully transformed woman, why? Why is she still called in Hebrews and in James, Rahab the harlot? Is that not hurtful? Does it not sound wrong? Well, I'll suggest to you what I think. When you look at that, you see, look what the grace of God can do. A woman fallen deep into sin, the grace of God has transformed her life. And doesn't the Bible say, by grace are ye saved through faith? Yes, it's the grace of God that saves you and me. We need the same grace. And if he can save, save a woman and transform a woman who has sunk so deep into sin, what can he not do? Who can he not save? The Lord is great. He's greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And the work of Christ is so glorious that when we confess our sins, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanseth us from all sin. And I say this to you in the light of that. Christ receiveth sinful men, even me. You can say with the hymn writer, even me, with all my sin. If you don't know him, seek him, come to him, call upon his name, and he'll save you, and he'll give you peace with God. We'll sing our final hymn. It's number 340. Number 340. And now our time has gone, so we won't be singing all of this hymn. Hymn number 340. Just the first verse only of the hymn. That's all I usually allow uh, at the end or all the time I leave myself for uh, the closing hymn. Uh, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me Lord to thee. 340, the verse 1, and we stand as we sing. <laughs>